Welcome back to State Local Government. This is Mark Johnson from M State Moorhead. This is the third and final installment of the series on the state legislatures. A distinction discussed a little bit in your book is this difference between what we call professionalized legislatures as opposed to amateur or citizen legislatures. Uh, in some states, members of the legislature are very well paid. There's a lot of support in terms of resources and staffing. And the sessions, the amount of time in, in the year that they spend conducting business, uh, is quite long. In these states, serving in the legislature isn't all that different from serving in the U.S. Congress. It's basically a full-time job. If the members have another job, the expectation is that service in the legislature is more important, and it wouldn't be unusual for state legislators to use that office as some sort of stepping stone to higher office, the Congress, the governorship, attorney general, something like that. In the political science literature, we call these professional or professionalized legislatures. Uh, by contrast, service in the legislature in some states is considered at best part-time. It's a part-time job. Uh, the members aren't particularly well paid. The assumption is uh, their job is to come to the state capitol for a couple of months, represent their neighbors in public policy decisions and debates, and then when the session is over, return home to their regular life and their regular job. We call these amateur or citizen legislatures. Um, members in these types, members in these states, they don't get a lot of support in terms of staffing or other resources. They don't get paid very well because that's not considered necessary. It's considered a part-time endeavor. If you look at that NCSL link on full and part-time legislators, you're going to see a discussion about this difference. Uh, the National Conference of State Legislators, the NCSL, is the host of that web article, uses colors rather than labels they used before to make these distinctions. What they call green, the green states on their map and chart, are marked by high levels of professionalism. Uh, service in the legislature is a full-time job. We're very close to that. Uh, the pay for members is pretty high, and there's a lot of staff support. A lot of the, a lot of the individual members have staff people who work for them. Um, there are seven states, Michigan, New York, California, Massachusetts, New Jersey, Ohio, and Pennsylvania, that hold year-round sessions. In other words, the legislature meets pretty much all year round, or at least the state constitution lets them do so. You'll notice that six of those seven states are either green or in light green. Uh, the light green on the NCSL site means that in, in the, those three categories at the bottom of the chart, they use those, those charts at the bottom, uh, pay, uh, pay staff and time, the state might be a little less extreme towards that full-time status. You'll notice that many of those green or professionalized states tend to be higher population and more urbanized, but that's not always true. Look at Alaska. It's light green on NCSL's chart. Alaska, which is the most rural state in the country, um, has really short sessions. They're about three months in the late winter, early spring. However, Alaska also places some really high demands on their legislators in terms of time outside of the session. Uh, the pay is pretty high. It's about $80,000 a year. And the reason for this is Alaska has a very small state legislature. There's only 20 state senators and 40 House members. And some of those legislative districts are humongous. There's a few of the rural districts that are literally a million square miles or more. So the members are given a lot of, a lot of individual staff to provide constituent service. 
they're given a fairly large budget to go travel, and the members themselves spend a lot of time, when the legislature is not meeting, traveling within their districts and meeting with constituents. So there's not a perfect correlation between state population and the professionalism of its legislature. At the other end of the spectrum, we have the amateur citizen states, which are labeled as gold and light gold on that NCSL map. North Dakota, you'll notice, is a gold state. The legislators in North Dakota make about $25,000 a year, or $25,000 over a two-year session. It's a $500 a month salary plus some daily pay for the actual time they're spent, they spend in Bismarck. But the session is pretty short. It's four months, only in the odd-numbered years. Uh, the interim study committees only meet in Bismarck for a day or two every month in the off-season. In terms of staff, there's literally only five people in the entire legislature who have staff who work directly for them. There's the four caucus leaders, the majority and minority leader in each of the House and Senate. They have two each. They get a, they get a secretary administrative assistant, again, only during the session, and they get a speechwriter who also doubles up as some sort of policy researcher. Again, those are session-only employees. And then the Speaker of the House also gets a secretary administrative assistant during the session. The other 136 members, they get nothing. They have no individual staff support. They write their own press releases. They write their own floor speeches. They answer their own emails. They answer their own phones. And they do all, mostly their own research on bills and amendments. You'll notice that in that chart on the NSSL page, they, they list the average total staff in gold states as 160. What, they're not just counting individual staff support. They're also including everybody who works for the legislature in any way, shape, or form. So the lawyers who draft bills for the nonpartisan bill drafting service, which most states have, the accountants, the policy analysts who work for uh, the legislative research office or the legislative fiscal office, uh, temporary committee clerks, sergeant in arms, park attendants, pages, copy room attendants, front desk staff, that counts everybody. So that 160 might sound like a lot of people, but they're counting everybody, including a lot of part-time and temporary support employees who have very little to do with the actual business of writing and researching legislation. So in these gold and light gold states, the legislature is very much part-time and it's a seasonal job. In between these two extremes, we find this large group of states, which political scientists call hybrid states, which the NCSL has labeled on its map, the gray states. You'll notice their current list, 26 of the 50 states are in that gray or hybrid category. This is that group that's in somewhere in between those two extremes. You'll notice that Minnesota, for example, is listed in this category. The pay for Minnesota legislators is about $42,000 a year. Plus, there's a daily pay for session days as well as travel and housing expenses for going back and forth to St. Paul. Most of the members, except for the leadership, share an assistant with, a number, with another member, or there's a pool of assistance amongst a larger group of members, and those people help with research and answering constituent email and phone calls, writing press releases, and that sort of thing. Uh, the legislature meets every year in Minnesota. The even-year session is a little shorter, about three months. The odd-year session is a little longer, about five months. But the members also spend a lot of time going back and forth from St. Paul, even in the off-season, for interim committee meetings. Oftentimes, those are two or three times a month, depending on which committee they're on. Uh, this is a sort of pattern that you see that's very common in these gray states. It's average pay, fairly low staff support, but fairly high expectations and demands for time. It's a pretty common pattern you see, and Minnesota's just an example of that. Uh, I posted in the outside readings this Minnesota Post article from 2017, talks about how the state's trying to figure out how to balance those expectations for a relatively high level of service 
with what has traditionally been a fairly low salary. That $42,000 is a recent increase. It was $30,000 just prior to 2017. Uh, many states in this, in this group deal with similar problems, similar issues. I mentioned this distinction between professional, amateur, and hybrid legislatures for a couple of reasons. First of all, in your case study assignments, one of the questions is going to ask you to evaluate how does NCSO classify your state, and then you're going to have to explain why you think that classification is accurate or not. And you're going to have to figure out, you're going to have to look up your state's legislative pay, staffing, session length, etc., and then compare them to those NCSL averages and say, hey, is, are they right? Did they classify my state properly? So you're going to want to look up your state's numbers in those areas and compare them. The other reason is that as you think about those short response questions, you might want to consider this distinction. Term limits in California, which is a highly professionalized state, are going to have a very different effect than term limits in South Dakota, which is one of the NCSL gold states. When you think about term limits or the session length question, keep in mind, not every state gives its legislators the same role, expectations, and benefits as those found elsewhere. And very few of them resemble the professional full-time pattern that's true in the U.S. Congress. As we learned in a previous unit on political parties, uh, American parties are not these rigid, ideologically consistent groups, which people in the popular press and media would, you know, and comment boards on the internet would have you believe. But, you know, we talked about conservative Democrats, moderate Republicans, and in a couple of the outside resources that I posted uh, for this unit, we can see that phenomenon actually in practice. We need to understand a concept called polarization. A highly polarized legislative body or a polarized country is one in which the members of one group refuse to compromise or cooperate with the members of another group. We could find examples of polarization in many contexts. In the Jim Crow South, in the pre-civil rights era, for example, it probably wouldn't surprise us that many members of different racial groups lived in completely different neighborhoods, went to different schools, rode different modes of public transportation, ate in different restaurants, attended separate churches, and so on and so on. In a completely polarized racial society, members of one group might even face scorn or criticism from their fellow group members for even daring to try to socialize with members of, the other, of other groups. But now race is just one example we could use to illustrate this concept. History is full of examples where people from different ethnic groups, religions, professional statuses, for example, labor versus management in urban environments, where people from those different groups refuse to engage with members from, from other subgroups. In legislative behavior, when we talk about this idea of polarization, we're describing legislative bodies where members of the two major political parties refuse to support legislation or ideas sponsored or promoted by people from the other side. In a completely polarized legislature, which does not exist, at least not 100% of the time, but in a, in a hypothetical, perfectly polarized legislature, it would be something akin to all the Democrats always vote agreement with each other on every single bill and the opposite of all the Republicans on each and every bill and vice versa. So hypothetically, let's say we had a legislature, 37 Democrats, 23 Republicans. On every single bill, the vote would be 37 to 23. If the Democrats wanted it to pass, it would be 37 to 23. If the Democrats didn't want it to pass, it would be 23 to 37. And that would be true of every, that would be a perfectly polarized legislature. Of course, these don't actually exist in reality. However, there have been a, several studies by political scientists going back uh, to the 70s, uh, a couple of guys by the name of Keith Poole and Howard Rosenthal, and they found that at various times in American history, the U.S. Congress has gone through periods of relatively high and then relatively low polarization. Since 1972, we have been in a period of relatively high polarization, 
according to Paul Rosenthal, and it's gotten appreciably more polarized since the late 1990s. One of the things that concerns political scientists about this is the potential for gridlock. If members of one party are under increasing pressure to not compromise with people on the other side, or even members of their own party might come from different areas of the state or represent different constituencies, there's this possibility that legislation just becomes more and more difficult to pass because nobody wants to compromise. The other fear is that as societies become more polarized, if the minority never gets its way on anything, then they might become disaffected, they might withdraw from public participation, or they might start start crazy talk about secession. I don't want to sound too alarmist here, but Poole and Rosenthal's study of this in Congress has found that prior, other than today, our fairly current high-level polarization, the other most extreme example of this is found in the 1850s, right on the eve of the Civil War. Political scientists are just starting to look at how this plays out in state legislatures. Uh, there was a 2011 study by a couple of guys, uh, Boris Shore, Nolan McCartney, a couple of political scientists, who found that in the majority of states, the legislature has been gradually becoming more polarized since around 2000, but there's a lot of variety as to how strong it is. California, for example, California is often pointed to as the most polarized state. There's virtually no cross-voting at all, especially in the state assembly. But because the Democrats have a two-thirds plus majority in that body, legislative business still gets done. Now, there's almost no influence from the Republican minority, but they still get things done. Now, by contrast, in Rhode Island, Delaware, and Louisiana, there's very little polarization. Party identification plays very little role in determining how members vote on things. Now, some of this is probably due to the fact that the Republican parties in Rhode Island and Delaware tend to attract more socially liberal and fiscally moderate candidates and voters than does that party nationally. And likewise, um, Democratic parties in southern states like Louisiana still attract a fair number of socially conservative candidates and voters. Now, Minnesota, according to Sean McCartney, was the seventh most polarized state legislature in 2016. That's the last year for which they've calculated data. And I posted uh, their last year of data, or at least their last uh, chart on this from 2016 in the outside readings. North Dakota, by contrast, was the seventh least polarized legislature during the same year. Now, there's no simple explanation for why this is. There's a couple of things we could notice in, in terms of differences. Minnesota's political parties, for example, are a lot more competitive broadly across the state. I didn't post these as an outside reading, but if you look at the election maps that the Minnesota Secretary of State's office puts together, and I've put a link in the actual notes, uh, you'll notice Democrats dominate the Twin Cities metro and the inner suburbs. They also do fairly well in the Iron Range. The Republicans dominate southwestern rural Minnesota, uh, the St. Cloud area, and the outer ring suburbs of the Twin Cities. Now, Democrats might have an advantage statewide, but there are enough Republicans spread out over multiple areas of the state that control of the legislature is at least competitive in most years. Right now, the Democrats control the state house, the Republicans control the state senate, but just within the last 15 years, those have flipped back and forth. State senate has flipped control three times, the house four times, just in the last 15 years. So in Minnesota, there's a chance that at any given moment in time, the majority party only has a very temporary hold on the chamber, and the minority might have a chance to take over if they just have, they all have to do is grab control of a dozen or so seats in the next election. Because the voters are so polarized, that ends up being reflected in the legislature. But in contrast to North Dakota, there's very few areas outside of, you get outside downtown Fargo and the college, you know, the college student areas of Fargo and Grand Forks, there's very little support for Democrats. There's three counties in the western part of the state with Native American populations. Other than that, it's a very 
Republican heavy state. The Democrats have only held a small majority of seats in the state Senate in the late 80s and early 90s. I think they controlled the Senate for three terms back then. And they held the majority in the House only one in the entire only once in the entire history of the state. In 1983, they held the majority. In 1985, there was a tie. So it was a power sharing agreement. Other than that, and that was 30 years ago, the Republicans have had a lock on power in the legislature for pretty much most of state history, and it's been very dominant for the last 25, 30 years. More recently, when you look at votes in statewide races or in legislative races, the Republicans dominate, and there's very few areas where the Democrats are really that competitive. But there are areas where they are competitive. And competitive doesn't just mean they win. It also means they might lose, but by very small margins. So if you're a Republican state legislator uh, from an area where the Democrats are as competitive, might that affect how you behave when it comes to voting on bills and issues? Might you be less likely to take staunch party line stances in alliance with more conservative Republicans, or might you be more willing to compromise? I didn't post any of this because it gets into some stuff that's really in-depth and way more in-depth than what we deal with in an intro-level course, but I've done quite a bit of research, particularly on North Dakota and a little bit on Minnesota, and I've posted my website, ndpolyprof.com. If, really, if you want to be bored, if you have trouble sleeping, I recommend reading through some of that, and it might, you might find it fascinating or you might find it absolutely stultifying. I'm not sure. But what that does show, Republican House members from urban and suburban districts in North Dakota are a little more likely to vote in agreement with the Democrats, at least sometimes. Democrats from rural districts, what few of them are left, are a little more likely to vote in line with the Republicans. That aligns, actually, with what Sean McCartney found in terms of North Dakota being one of the least polarized states. But I want to be very careful about this. This is not the only explanation. There are single-party states. California is like North Dakota. It's a single-party state. You know, the Democrats, but now the Democrats dominate, not the Republican. But according to Sean McCartney, it's by far, and it's not even close. They're the most polarized state legislature in the country. Colorado's a very, Colorado's kind of a close second, but they're by far the two worst. Rhode Island, by contrast, is also a single-party state. It's dominated by the Democrats, but it's much less polarized. And then Louisiana, which has which has very competitive statewide balance, it's similar to Minnesota in that way, in which control of the state legislature can flip back and forth. It's also much less polarized. And then you have a state like Nebraska, which doesn't even use party labels in electing the legislature, but they're starting to show elements of this. They're starting to show patterns of polarization in House senators vote. Um, I did post in, within the notes a Washington Post article. You might not have access to the Washington Post, depending on if other instructors are assigning it. I believe you can read two or three articles a month for free on the Washington Post website. Uh, Seth Maskett, who is a political scientist, I believe at the University of Denver, has done an interesting study on applying this to Nebraska, even though Nebraska is technically nonpartisan. And what he found is, yeah, Nebraska is polarizing too. And he wrote a little piece about it for the Washington Post. So there's a link to that on the website. So anyway, this is an extremely complicated issue. Uh, it has no easy explanations, but it's something to think about. Thanks for listening to this special three-part series on state legislatures. I'm Mark Johnson from State Moorhead, and have a great day.